All right, well, if you have one of those um, scripture journals, uh, open up to Matthew 5. Um, if you don't have one, we have them. They're totally free and available on the table back there if you'd like to follow along. It's just the scripture um, with note-taking on the side. So those are free for you to use if you'd like. Um, but Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, the Sermon on the Mount has really, it's climbed through to where we're at now, and it's climbed through um, sort of some of the um, heart issues, uh, things like sin start in the heart, it talks about murder beginning in the heart, we talk about adultery beginning in the heart, um, and it, it's kind of climbed through that, um, and moved into kind of the more applicational side, like being generous and going the extra mile with those in the world and, and being the salt and light. And today we're actually going to kind of um, culminate all of that into this this huge command at the very end of this chapter, this massive command that is going to say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's kind of the top. <laughs> There's no, nowhere else to go from there, really. I mean, if you're at that point, you're at the very top. So, uh, But before he gets there, he is going to have to correct some religious um, teachings of his day. Something that the rabbis, the Pharisees have been spreading around, the way they've been interpreting and applying the scriptures, um, specifically the law, has been uh, really distorted. And Jesus is going to have to correct that. He's going to have to correct that. Um, And he's going to use scripture to do so. He's not just going to go in there with some fancy arguments. He's just literally going to use scripture, the very thing they're distorting, and just make it clear. And just, just by making it clear, he will, in truth, refute their bad application. So Matthew 5, we're going to start in verse 43 down near the bottom. This is a famous passage everybody knows um, that uh, we are to love our, our neighbor and our enemy as ourselves. So verse 43, let's just read the first couple of verses. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus has to correct this gross misinterpretation, um, and even worse, misapplication of Mosaic law. He has to correct it. Religious leaders of the day were saying to love your neighbor, did you catch? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they were saying which they were pulling from Leviticus 19.18, which I'll put on the screen for you, which says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. Then he finishes with, I am the Lord. (laughs) It's sort of the, the drop. I am the Lord. Nothing you can say about it. I love that he uses that, almost as though he knew that we... Yeah, I'm associating myself with the religious leaders that we would twist his words to try to get out of stuff that we don't like to do, to try to get out of things that isn't popular. Jesus, of course, knew the full passage when he read it, and he quoted it, and how they distorted it. It's funny, where he ends with, I am the Lord, it kind of takes me back to being a kid. Takes me right back to being a kid. Uh, I had a little brother. I shared a room with him, uh, which could be a disaster at times. The room, not a relationship. Well, maybe both. But, <laughs> but it takes me back to being a kid when my little brother would come in the room and he'd say something like, hey, we have to go pull weeds. And I'd be like, says who? <laughs> which, by the way, you guys are way too nice. Let's be real. I was a dumb 11-year-old. <laughs> says who? 
<laughs> like, like my little brother was like, hmm, Super Mario World? We're pulling weeds. I want to pull weeds, and I'm going to ask my big brother, who I always fight with, to come do it with me. Says who? A dumb question. But I'd say, says who? And be like, Dad. Oh, okay. Well, I don't like the way you said it. Saying that one of my parents says so immediately killed any argument that could be had. My parents were good disciplinarians. I had a great deal of respect for them. I understood that when my brother said, Dad said so, he wasn't lying, and therefore I better do it. I just knew it couldn't be argued with. I just simply had to obey. That was it. I just had to obey. Once the words were said, had to obey. So by saying, the, I am the Lord, God takes away all room, removes all room for objection. Takes it all away. Arguing against what God says automatically puts us in an unwinnable position. And then Jesus puts any who would disagree with him into an unwinnable position by quoting the scriptures. Doesn't mean that they won't argue about it. Doesn't mean that they won't talk back. There are plenty who would talk back and argue about the scriptures. But the beauty about the scriptures is that they are the words of God. They are 100% true. So therefore, whether people agree or not, whether they argue back or not, you can be 100% confident, as Jesus was 100% confident, that what he was saying was correct, was true, and that he doesn't have to defend himself. This is God's word. God will judge. It's God's truth. There is great confidence in the knowledge of God's truth. And when we speak it, regardless of the reaction, we can have great confidence that we are in the right because Jesus is in the right, not because we came up with it. We didn't come up with it. I never would have wrote down, love your neighbor as yourself and your enemies. (laughs) No way would I have wrote that down. God will be the judge. But you'll notice that they removed two words and they added some new ones. Okay, so I'm going to put a slide up on the screen. It's kind of like a a top and bottom side by side. Um, They were teaching to love your neighbor, but were minimizing the impact by removing the as yourself. The Jewish leaders at the time removed as yourself. Okay, so that, that minimizes the impact. Much worse, though, was the addition of and hate your enemies. So they're removing the impact of how much you have to love your neighbor, and then they're adding and hate your enemies. Why were they doing this? They were interpreting their neighbor as fellow Jews. And more than that, even, they were ignoring the context of the rest of Scripture. They were teaching that your neighbor was only your community, fellow Israelites, not the filthy Gentiles. So therefore, they didn't have to love the rest of the, of the world, which is what they wanted. You see, it was their cultural climate. Think about what it meant to be a Jew in that era, living under Roman rule, living under, I mean, countless times they've been warred upon and sieged upon and, and um, killed and gone into battle and abused and beaten. Culturally, Nobody wanted to love their enemies. So they would have easily latched onto this idea if a teacher got up and spoke and said, you don't have to love your enemies. It only says to love your neighbor. So therefore, the flip side of that, if I don't have to love my neighbor or my, um, my 
enemies, then I can hate my enemies. It was easy to move to that conclusion since that's what the people wanted to hear. It's very tempting for a leader, and if you've ever listened to politics, you'll know this is true. It's very tempting for a leader who wants to stay in leadership to say what the people want to hear. So the cultural situation leads to the misapplication of Scripture. Human sin gets in the way. It's really easy to misapply Scripture to our lives if it's what we want to hear. This goes for us today. Now, if they had just read a little bit more, uh, literally the same chapter, now for them it would have been a scroll, but for us, literally the same chapter. Very little context needed. Very little of that 2020, pastors like to say, above and below, 2020 verses, right? Very little of that. Just a smidge further up the scroll, they would have found Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, which reads like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Well, the resident alien is not a Jew. That's not a countryman. That's somebody traveling from afar. That is the same passage that they're quoting from. And God says to provide for the resident alien. Then again, a little further down in the same scroll, they would have found Leviticus 19.33 through 34, which reads, When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Multiple times, God wanted to get across. You are to be salt and light to the world. You are my people to be a blessing. Multiple times he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your alien as yourself. Pretend like they're native born. They are one of you. They're one of you. Having the knowledge that they were minimizing the law and adding to it paints another passage in a really cool light. And I've, I've never actually, this is really cool. So I've never actually picked up on this before when I was reading this other portion of Matthew that we're going to flip to. So I want to rabbit trail over there for just a minute. It's kind of a rabbit trail. It's not necessarily on topic, but it is actually, like, this is really cool. I never saw this parallel before. If you have one of those um, scripture journals, I would encourage you to consider writing uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40 next to... Um, verses 33 and 34 of our current chapter 5 passage. And then flip over there with me to Matthew 22, 34. Um, this is when the Pharisees were coming and asking questions. The Sadducees had already come and asked questions of Jesus, and he answered them, as he always does, with wit and clever, um, knowing their hearts, going straight to their heart, addressing their heart. But knowing how they were distorting specifically this one Levitical passage about loving your neighbor as yourself, this brings us into a whole new light. Matthew twenty two thirty four through uh, through 40 reads like this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, ooh, an expert in the law, asked a question of him. Teacher, which command is in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Knowing how they've been distorting this to love your neighbor and hate your enemy really brings into light what Jesus was doing here with them. This expert of the law who, and I believe he probably was an expert in the law, knew what the passage actually said. He actually knew what was said, and it would have made him really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. Because he knows we've been teaching them to love their neighbor, but hate their enemies. We've been excluding the world from neighbors and been teaching them to hate their enemy. So when Jesus says this, it logically shut him down. It's one of those moral issues. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but you walk into an, a situation where you know you're on the wrong side of the moral argument. And when someone brings up something around that moral argument, it makes you really uncomfortable. Because, you know, oh man, we might end up on that subject that I know I'm in the wrong on. It makes you want to back away right away. In fact, just a little further down in the same passage in Matthew, after they'd asked him another question about the Messiah, says that the Pharisees no longer had any questions for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. Absolutely shut down by the truth of Scripture. By the truth of Scripture. Removing the distortion that was put on it. A very large portion of Jesus' time in the ministry was dedicated to correcting the distortion and misapplication of God's law, particularly God's heart behind the law. Which makes me open my, my mind and causes me to think, in what ways am I doing that? In what ways am I doing that? Where am I allowing things, my personal preferences, my social, my cultural desires, where do I allow God's direct commandments to me to distort? And I have to pray and ask, Lord, search me and know my heart. See if there's any way, offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me not into temptation. I have to pray that. Because I don't want to assume that I am so much better than the Pharisees that my desires wouldn't get in the way of God's truth. I have to read the scriptures with that heart, that humble mentality. I have to go there. In fact, I'll tell you exactly where I've struggled for years. Uh, and those, who, <laughs> those of you who know me well, I'm ashamed to say, will know that um, I still struggle in the same way. This is still my personal struggle, uh, which is in the applicational side of what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 44, back in our text. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those that persecute you, so that you may be children of the Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sets rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, I'm very good, very good um, at biting my tongue, just being quiet. Biting my tongue and preventing arguments and fights. I take, I've actually like taken pride in the fact of, oh, I can, I can just like bite my tongue and, and avoid fights. I don't get in a whole lot of arguments. You know, I don't, I don't get in fights. It just doesn't happen. Take a lot of pride in that. But that's not what Jesus is saying we're called to. You see, I took the first half and just left out the second half. 
where he says that we are to actively intercede on behalf of our enemies. He wants us to take action. That's where I struggle. I'm very good at avoiding confrontation. I'm not so good at going in my heart, in that place, to intercede for people, to be willing to walk into those confrontational situations where I have to speak truth. It's easier for me to avoid it. Good at avoiding. He wants us to take action, not just for those that we know. I pray for those I love all the time. Not just believers, but that we are to intercede for our very own enemies with our hearts. We're supposed to mean it. We're supposed to love them and actually be interceding in our hearts in prayer to God for them. It's what we're called to. And it's not like Jesus didn't do this himself. Jesus didn't preach and then not walk. He walked so loudly, and I don't mean his foots were like T-Rex, I mean he walked so loud in his conduct. He would do it himself later on the cross as he was dying, looking down and interceding for those that were spitting on him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Interceding in prayer for those that nailed him to the cross, those that spat on him, crushed the crown into his skull, deformed him to the point where he was unrecognizable. He interceded for those people from the cross. He asked us to do it and then did it so much more powerfully than I could ever even imagine. He didn't just want us to do it, though. He commanded it. Dad said, intercede for them. While he was hanging on the cross, he knew the law. Even while he's hanging there, he knew the law. He had written it in his heart. He was the faithful priest who always did whatever was in God's heart. He knew the law. It was written on his heart. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He had God's law written on his heart so perfectly that while he's hanging on the cross, he was able to fulfill the law further and intercede for those that were his enemies. So why are we called to love our enemies? Why was Jesus called to love his enemies? What was the purpose? Why does God desire us to do that? The rest of the world's not doing that. The rest of the world looks down upon their enemies. In fact, um, nowadays, it's really easy. If you've got an enemy, you can just go onto a social media platform and shout about it and get probably a few hundred people that will support you and agree with you and say, yeah, condemn that fool, destroy that person, cancel that individual. Let's wreck them. So why are we called to be different? Verse 46, for if you love those who love you... What reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors were worse in their day. <laughs> they were much worse. They actually would, um, the way they would make money is by taking whatever number of tax they decided and then any excess beyond what had to go back to Rome, they would keep for themselves. Evil men. Don't even the tax collectors love those who love them? And if you only, uh, 
And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? That's us, Gentiles. Woo. Uh, <laughs> don't even the sinners, the ugly people of the world, do the same? It doesn't take much to look on TV, to look in society, to look on social media, to look around us and see that even the most debased individuals in our community have someone they love that loves them back. It's mutual. Pretty much everybody does. Your mama's going to love you if no one else. You got that. Everybody does that. It's easy to love back to somebody who loves you. It gratifies you. You're getting something out of it. You're getting something for that. So how are we going to be salt and light if we taste and look like the rest of the world? Because you see, that was further up in Jesus' sermon. Jesus started, not started the sermon with that, but he hit that long before he got down to this passage, that we are to be salt and light to the world. What does he mean by that? We should taste and look different. We should illuminate God's light to our common folk around us, our countrymen. There we go. There's the right term. Our countrymen around us. Our community. We are supposed to look and taste different. You don't look different because you love those who love you. You look different because you love the one that's spitting at you, the one that's yelling at you. And notice he doesn't say you're not going to have enemies. It's not like uh, if you're following God's word, everyone will love you and you won't have any enemies. Uh, Or on my side, just play nice and no one will really hate you. Says you're going to have enemies. It's not sin to have enemies. But he says we are to love our enemies. You don't have to know the Lord to love your friends and family. Everyone loves their own crew. What makes us salt and light to a dying world is that we intercede for our enemies and love them as ourselves. And that's different. That tastes and looks different. That's the kind of attitude that attracts, and this is the key. That's the kind of attitude that attracts a man or a woman who is at the low breaking point. The person who has gone through their whole life living a sinful, debauched life, and they're at their breaking point, and they are looking for any answer to the nastiness that is this world. They have come to the point where they realize this world is terrible. It's awful. This world's destructive. Living in a destructive lifestyle hurts. I know because I've met people who got saved years and years into a nasty lifestyle. And they'll say, uh, yeah, the whole time I was proclaiming that I was justified in what I was doing, I was miserable. When somebody gets to that low point, they are looking for an open door. And when we love our enemies, when they're spitting at us, they're going to see that and say, that's the person. That's what I'm thirsty for, that attitude. Because I know I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect. I need somebody who's going to love me anyways. That's the heart of Christ they see. That's God's heart. That's what attracts the thirsty person who is looking for good in this world to drink. And that person comes with eagerness when they see the difference. If all they see is a hard closed door that says God hates you, they're not going to try to walk through it. It looks different because it's not our kindness. It's the kindness, it's the kind of kindness that sinful humans, we the broken creation, naturally uh, don't naturally have in our hearts. It's the kindness that leads to repentance. To love anyone as ourselves is a terribly difficult thing to do. It's a terribly difficult thing to do. To love someone I love 
as myself is a terribly difficult thing to do. So I have needs, I have wants, I have desires, I'm selfish. To love an enemy as ourselves is only possible in one way. You're only ever going to actually love somebody who is your enemy as yourself one way. Going to the foot of the cross often. Going right to the gospel. Humbly recognizing how we, how I got right here where I'm at from where I was. Humbly recognizing what Jesus did, the sacrifice he made, and it was because of my sin. That we were once dead in our sins, redeemed only because Jesus decided to love us, loving our lives so much that he was willing to give up his for ours. You see, he valued our lives equally with his own. Therefore, he was willing to give it up. He loved us who were at war with him in our hearts while we were enemies to him. He loved us as himself and proved it by being willing to give himself for us. Going to the cross often reminds us of the same thing that God reminded his people back in Leviticus. Because you see, God, God's never changing. He didn't change who he was. He's been the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has always been the same. And in Leviticus 19.34, he says, You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. And then this key at the end. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Love the alien as yourself because you were once alien yourself. You were once not my people. You were once against me. You were once warring against me with your own heart. You yourself are just as debased and broken and unredeemed without my love. He has been saying that to his people since the beginning. He is saying that to us now and it's just as true today. None of us are redeemed on our own. Every one of our unsaved enemies is simply this, a soul that has not yet been redeemed. As we ourselves were redeemed. They just haven't been saved yet. Our goal should be to save that soul. Not in part, but paid in full. That's our goal. It's where our heart should be. That should be what, what breaks us in our prayers. When we go to the Lord first and we recognize what he has done for us, when we recognize the redemptive power of the cross and where we have been brought from, that should humble us enough to love the person who has not been redeemed yet enough to go after their soul in intercession, to pray for them, to speak truth, to make sure that door is wide open so that if they get to the point where they are thirsty, they can come and drink. And not only can they, they want to. They should want to. He concludes with that all-powerful verse, which we're going to clear up a little bit today. Um, Understanding the context of the word usage and the context of the whole sermon is important with this. But he ends with verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now that's interesting because Luke's account says something different. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 36, says this, Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. He uses the word merciful instead of perfect. It's odd. The Aramaic word that was likely used here in Matthew actually meant all-embracing. meant all-embracing. And so be merciful can kind of make sense. Because of the context and usage of uh, a word usage, we understand that this, most scholars would agree, this probably means love perfectly as your false, father also loves perfectly. Specifically calling for us to love perfectly. Now, before I move on, I don't want to dismiss other passages in the Old, Old and New Testament that say, be holy as I am holy. This, this is not saying the same thing as that, but it is also not discounting that. So unless you think I'm you know, disagreeing with be holy as I'm holy, uh, not at all. In 1 Peter 1.16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And in Leviticus 11.45, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God so that you must be holy because I am holy. Scripture absolutely says that. We could have a whole conversation about that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. The context of the Aramaic word, all-inclusive, is talking about loving perfect as your Father in heaven loves perfect. And that's because all of the law, all of the prophets, depend on this one commandment, as Jesus said. Love the Lord your God your heart, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law hinges on that, which means that every good and wonderful thing that you have ever done for anybody has been rendered completely ineffective if it was not done out of love. I have seen horrendous stories recently about pastors who spent their entire ministry doing things that we would call great, wonderful, amazing things. And I think if we look at Scripture and we see men who were doing great things for the Lord and following, we could still say that they were doing great things. Absolutely fell. But those who did it without love, you can see the consequences of doing it without love. Without a love for people, without a genuine desire for the betterment of our fellow men and women around us, without that love that Christ had, everything we're doing is, is completely made ineffectual. Speaking the truth, not in love, does damage. Not speaking the truth in love does damage. Most of us land on one side or the other. For a lot of people, they're like, yeah, I speak truth all the time. I'll smack them with it. Some of you maybe are like me. I'd rather avoid the confrontation. I'd rather allow them to run themselves into the ground and just keep myself out of it. God has called us to be proactive and intercede in love. And by doing so, we fulfill all the law, all the prophets. We fulfill the heart and love of God himself. That is the law. It's God's heart. The lawgiver, the, whatever law has been given always comes from the heart and the mind of the lawgiver. So the law is literally the intentions of God's heart. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Lord, I, um, I, do, I pray for our enemies right now. 
I know there are um, enemies of you in our very um, community on this block, um, and they need you. They need you in their hearts. They need your redemptive power. They're, they are thirsty, and um, we desire to see them connect with you. We desire to intercede for them. We don't want to take, Jesus, we don't want to take your words and misapply them. If you're willing to do it, then so shall we. So we do ask that you intercede in the lives of um, those who consider themselves against you. I have a few individuals in my mind. I don't want to speak their names aloud, but I ask for, I ask for your intercession for them today, um, specifically saying that they hate you. Um, and I know you, you can change their hearts. You can change their, their very souls. You can bring them to life and give them a, a new heart that's beating. I ask that you do that. I ask that you send any kind of messenger that's necessary to grab a hold of them and, and um, bring them into your kingdom. And Lord, what a celebration that would be if they walked through these doors. That would be hugs and tears of joy as, as, as you said, the whole host of angels rejoices when one sinner turns. Would you reach our community and use us to do it? Give us your heart. Forgive us for our debts and um, as we forgive others. We ask this in your name. Amen.